Hey everybody, welcome to Redemption Church. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're not familiar with who I am, my name is Brent Skelly, and I am uh, in the process of coming on board here as one of the staff pastors. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, if you guys would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, if you don't know, Matthew is one of the uh, four Gospels. It's the first book in the New Testament. Uh, and if you're not familiar with what the Gospels are, the Gospels are just accounts or recounts of Jesus' uh, life, of Jesus' story. Uh, and this week we'll find ourselves in chapter 6 of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses of chapter 6, which is right in the middle of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is where, we've, where we're beginning. So if you guys, uh, before we uh, read the scripture together, if you would just uh, join me and we can just pray. Father, we know that you're good, we know that you're faithful, uh, that when uh, we're in your word, Lord, you do a work uh, to draw us to, to your son, uh, you do a work uh, to transform our hearts, and we just pray that you would do that this morning, and for me, Lord, that you would just calm my nerves, uh, and Lord, that you would just give me the words that bring glory to you and only you. Amen. So let's read the text, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the first thing that I want us to see here is that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Jesus isn't teaching a series of propositional truths for the sake of propositional truths. There's a context that we can look past, and that context is discipleship. And this is pretty convenient because we've spent the last year as a church spending a lot of time talking about what discipleship actually is, and we've talked about how we want to be disciples of Jesus who are leading uh, people to be disciples of Jesus, or in other words, that we are uh, we want to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And in fact, that's the vision statement of Redemption Church. It's to lead people to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus. And because of what we see in the Gospels, we're convinced that a, a disciple is someone who is increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus. I want to say it again because I think that's real important. When we use the term disciple, I remember uh, being in college. It was, it was our fourth year, and we had a bunch of seniors who got together with one of our professors, and he asked us, he asked us a question. He said, you know, we're talking about the Great Commission, going and making disciples and all this good stuff. And he just asked us, he says, what is a disciple? We just kind of looked at one another for a second, and we were like, well... It'd be nice if we had a good answer for this. Uh, and so we're all trying different things. We're all, and, and, you know, he's, okay, good, good, good. But the idea was is that this is a term that we use so frequently, and we really don't even know what it is. But when we look at the Gospels, we see that a disciple is, is someone who is following Jesus and who is increasingly submitting all of life to his empowering presence and his, and, and his lordship. So we want to make sure that we're operating under that understanding that, that that's what Jesus is doing here. And this is the broader context that we can't really afford to miss. Because if you look back in, in actual textual context, you'll see in chapter 4, Jesus is, uh, goes and begins his ministry. He calls his disciples to begin following after him. And immediately he goes from town to town to town to town, and he's healing and teaching. And as, as you would suspect, if somebody is going around and doing physical healings, uh, and uh, who is a phenomenal teacher, crowds begin to follow. 
Crowds begin to attract to Jesus wherever he goes. And what we see in chapter 5 is he notices that that the crowds are coming, and, and he actually, it says he goes up onto the mountain, and his disciples come after him, and then he begins to teach them. And that's, where, that's our context. That's where we are. But what you've got to see is that, that Jesus is in the process of actually making disciples. That's what's happening here. And, and for those of you who are familiar with Matthew, you know that he calls his disciples. He then equips his disciples, prepares them to do what he's later going to call them to do, which, if you're familiar with Matthew, you know is the Great Commission. At the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus, with his disciples, says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Here, go therefore, make disciples, baptizing, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded. And then he promises that he will be with them always. So we've we got to kind of see that it's, it's within this sandwich. And if you look at the timeline, he calls his disciples, he equips his disciples, and then he commissions his disciples to go, go make disciples And that's what's happening here. We have to see it in context, or or otherwise we just sit around and we just talk about a series of, or or, or a list of things that we should do or shouldn't do, or we just talk about, you know, we we could sit around and talk about what is Jesus really saying here? Uh, We could spend a lot of time and miss uh, what's there. So I think I'm convinced that if we want to be a church, if we feel that God is leading us to be a church of people who are disciples of Jesus, who are making disciples of Jesus, we should really take a look at what Jesus is doing because he's really the object. He's really the point. Uh, and and he, is our, he is the chief discipler. So we should, we should take notes from what Jesus is doing. So looking at the text specifically, we want to look and see what is Jesus actually doing? See, the two, the two lenses that we, we, we need to be looking at this through is one, he is calling them to increasingly submit more of their life to him or all of it their life to him. So what is he doing in the disciples' hearts to call them to submit to him? And then also, we need to be looking, and as Jesus is our chief, chief disciple, then how are we to be leading other people to do the same? So what, again, what, what do we see him teaching here in this verse? I like what D.A. Carson says. D.A. Carson says that in chapter 6, Jesus isn't necessarily uh, dealing with teaching his disciples some new form of righteousness, a different form of righteousness than he taught about in chapter 5. Rather, Here in chapter 6, Jesus is interested in dealing with the motives that that drive our righteous living. So again, it's important for us to see the first thing we take away is that this is happening within the context of discipleship. That is what Jesus is doing. He is making disciples, leading them so that they can then go and make disciples. So let's let's go to the the structure of the text. In verse 1, Jesus is going to present the principle. He's going to present the principle. He's going to say, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For them, you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So verse 1, we have the principle. And then verse 2, he gives an illustration. And his illustration is, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So he gives the principle He then illustrates that principle, and then because the disciples are probably a lot like me and you and give the head nod and go, okay, yeah, we get the principle, we're going to, you know, worship God rightly and and all these things, he then, like, gives them uh, some application to reveal their broken motives and their need uh, of this Jesus that they're following. So in verse 3 and 4, the application, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret 
will reward you. I'm not sure how I ended up with a core cheat there. Uh, you don't want me to read that? All right, so uh, verses 2. It's important for us to see that Jesus is giving a warning. He's giving a caution to his, his followers. Uh, but it's not just some caution to do a generous or a good deed. He's actually cautioning them about their motives. Notice in verses 2 and 3, Jesus is actually reinforcing an already existing call on God's people to live generous lives. And living generous lives that are motivated by the goodness and generosity of God. This actually is a continuation of an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament teaching uh, in Deuteronomy 15. I'm going to read just a piece of Deuteronomy 15. I kind of had to break it apart. It's, it's long, and I didn't want to take a whole lot of time. Uh, but I would encourage you this week, after we're done looking at Matthew 6, 1 through 4, read Deuteronomy 15 in light of what you've learned in Matthew 6. I think it'll blow your mind. It'll give you a whole other perspective on it. So I'm going to read uh, from Matthew, or Deuteronomy 15. God says, If any poor, or anyone poor is among you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, Open your hand, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this today. Now it's real easy to miss and not pick up on what's happening here. But God is reminding them through the opportunity of giving, through their experience with those who are in need, that he is really their provider. And this is so important because the people of God, as we we know, often miss that. We forget that God is really the provider and that our eyes are to be on him. We're to seek first the kingdom, which is later on in this chapter. It's kind of like this. Uh, yesterday morning, if, does anybody know, if, if you're familiar with Eden, Eden is our 10-month-old baby, and she is about as expressive as uh, you could be. Uh, so yesterday morning, uh, she cries. Uh, I go get her out of her crib, uh, and first thing she does, begin, well, that's not true. First thing she does is point to the giraffe named Chad and says, Chad. Uh, and then after that, she then starts smacking her lips because she tells you exactly what she wants, when she wants it. Uh, she's very thorough in her communication. So I know she is hungry. She needs to eat. Now, because I love my child, I'm not just going like, to let her sit there and starve. Right? I'm going to go get her some food. She doesn't really see what I'm doing. So I, I actually go and I take her and I set her down in the bed with Kelly because it's like 6.30 a.m. Uh, I sit her in the bed with Kelly while I go to grab puffs. Does anybody know what puffs are? The little kids' puffs? If you have kids, you know what puffs are. They are lifesavers. So, you know, I wasn't ready to make breakfast. It was 6.30. So I go and I grab the puffs off the top of the refrigerator. Oh, they're little cereals. They're like little uh, dissolvable cereals that kids, that Eden loves. So I'm walking into the bedroom. Eden's sitting up on the bed, and she sees the can of puffs in my hand, and she flips. Now, you know Eden loves to dance. She starts dancing side to side. She starts clapping. She's smacking her lips. She is thrilled about the puffs that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to her. So what do I do as a good father who loves his baby? I open the lid to the puffs. I pour them in my hand. I then close the lid to the puffs, and then I put them on top of my dresser. Now, th- there's no lapse in time here. As soon as I do this, I walk towards her with puffs in my hand ready to give to her, and she is distraught. I have left the can of puffs on the dresser. They're not on the way to her. She's angry. So she can't, she is so mad. Again, you you just have to know how expressive she is. You you think I'm exaggerating. If you know her, you know. I'm walking up to her, and she is giving me a look. She's like, don't you know I need those puffs? I am hungry. And uh, she she looks at me. She's kind of glaring at me. And (laughs) I have the puffs actually in my hand. 
I'm taking her puffs. I get right next to where she is, handing her puffs, and she can't see. She's too blinded by what she thinks she needs to see what I'm actually coming to give her is really what she actually wants. It's the same thing here in Deuteronomy 15. It's the same thing with God's people. He's giving them this command. He's saying what he's saying to stir up a heart of, a heart of worship. He's, he's, he's giving them uh, this command to give generously because in the giving generously, they're reminded that God has provided for them all things and that they can afford to give generously because they have a father who is infinitely generous among them, who is supplying their every need. The command isn't some emotionless rule. It's not something, hey, do this to get right. It was meant to foster a heart of worship in the one who was giving to remember all that God had done. And I love, in light of our discipleship and being on mission with the gospel, it's actually missional as well because it doesn't just stir up a heart of worship in the one who is giving, but it also stirs up a heart of worship in the one who's receiving. Blessing people with what the Lord has given you is really, truly one of the best ways to demonstrate that you really believe that he's generous and good. This isn't a standalone thing in the Old Testament. We see it here in Matthew 6. We saw it in the last few weeks as we've gone through chapter 5. And we also see it echoed later on in the New Testament. One verse in particular that stood out to me was 1 John 3.16. It says, if anyone has the world's good deeds... Or, nope. <laughs> nope. Uh, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He, hear it. If anyone has the world's good deeds, or <laughs> I keep saying good deeds, uh, <laughs> if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart, how does, God love, how does God's love abide in him? The call to live generously <clears throat> is a call to respond to the abiding and present love of our infinitely generous and loving Father. His goodness, his love, his generosity can be our motivation. And I just want to add a disclaimer. When we're talking about living generous lives, I'm not just talking about giving money to a, a, a basket in the back, or I'm not talking about giving just to missions. I'm talking about in everyday stuff of life, the way that you operate. Do we operate as though we have been gifted all things from God. He, he, just, he happens to be using in Deuteronomy the, the idea of land. And you see later on in Deuteronomy, he gives an example of don't harvest your fields a second time. Go through, get the first fruit, and leave what's there so the people going through you know, will essentially know that I am the Lord your God, I'm good, and I'm provider. It goes beyond just our money. It's our time, and it's our energy, it's our effort, it's our talents, it's our gift, it's our possessions. And in light of our New Testament call to make disciples, to be on mission with the gospel, this is one of the greatest resources we have to demonstrate that God is good and God is generous. So verse 3, we see the application. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. 
Now, at first glance, when I saw this, I'm thinking, like I told you, we got to look through the lens of discipleship, the context of discipleship. I'm like, okay, he's called his disciples. He's equipping his disciples to fulfill his commission to make disciples. Well, how does this idea of giving generously uh, and giving to where you don't even, your left, right hand doesn't even know what your left hand is doing or vice versa, how does this line up with our call to make disciples? At first, it could seem like a bit of a paradox. Because the truth is, is that Jesus, again, is calling his disciples to make disciples, teaching them to obey all he's commanded. And at some point, whether by word or by deed, the disciples will have to teach this to someone else. They are commanded in Scripture to go and teach this. How can you teach this if you do not make it known? Even if they're not doing it by action, if they're not demonstrating generosity in front of other people, which really kind of is crazy because our modeling is one of the best ways we have to actually teach and train people, Eventually, regardless of whether they demonstrate it, uh, they'll have to teach it. They'll have to go against what it seems like Jesus is actually teaching. But I think it's, it, it's actually relatively simple. And, it, and it's good hermeneutics. If Jesus, is, <clears throat> excuse me, if Jesus is giving an illustration, the illustration is there to represent the principle. And so the key to this is to go back to verse 1 and look. Jesus doesn't say, don't give in front of other people. He doesn't even say, beware of giving in front of other people. He says, beware of giving in front of others to be seen by them. Be on the lookout. No. Jesus isn't calling us to avoid practicing good and righteous deeds around one another. Rather, I believe in verses 3 and 4, Jesus is generously offering his followers a very practical test for them to evaluate their hearts. So the tests. Again, if you're like me, you hear the principle and you give the proverbial nod. You say, got it. You hear the illustration and you think to yourself, surely, those idiots. Like, I mean, it, I mean, we know. You see all the illustrations of the Pharisees in the New Testament and you just go, how could they do these sorts of things? Uh, but Jesus knows that's where our heart is and he knows that's where his disciples' heart is. He quickly follows up with this test to reveal to his disciples that their hearts are just as broken and they are just in need of Jesus as the hypocrites who are giving uh, to be seen and be praised by men. So, what does the test reveal? The test reveals... The truth. And the truth is that we hate the secret. The test exposes us bare, naked, ashamed, exposed as hypocrites, the same kinds of hypocrites we see in verse 2. Because the truth is, we really want the praise. We love to impress others. We even love to impress ourselves. I was talking to my wife, and uh, she was reading through this, and she was, well, yeah, I'm not you know, so inclined to try to do things to get other people. And I guess there's different personalities Maybe, maybe it's giving so that you could feel good about yourself, that you measure up. Maybe it's so other people will consider that you measure up. The reality, though, is that we love to impress others. We love to impress ourselves. We love to be the center of the tension. We love to be the center of the story, but it's no good. The reward that we receive actually wrecks us. It leaves us broken, and it leaves us desolate. And the test may seem harsh, right, because it reveals like the inner brokenness. But the test is, is absolutely necessary, if you think about it. Jesus has called his disciples to increasingly submit all of their life to him, which is going to require him getting into the brokenness of their hearts. It requires him to penetrate into the deep and broken places inside our own hearts. 
If we want to be a people who are submitting to Jesus, increasingly submitting to Jesus in every area of life, then it's absolutely necessary that we allow the Lord to go there in our hearts and that we allow one another in our communities to go there, to lead us to increasingly submit to Jesus. This is what's demonstrated here. Because if we don't allow Jesus, if we don't allow our community to get into our hearts to, and to point us to Jesus, that when, whenever we lead people, because we're all leading people all the time, you may or may not know this, you're actually making disciples all, all the time. You're leading people. You're influencing people. People are following your direction. But the question is, what are you making a disciple of? And if we don't let him penetrate the depths of our hearts, then we're making disciples of something other than Jesus. And that's no good because that means we're leading ourselves and others to emptiness, desolation, and brokenness. The truth of what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to teach us that the glory of being praised by man, whether it's ourselves or other people, absolutely pales in comparison to the glory offered to us in the Father. As long as we're the hero of the story, we're going to settle for the praise of man. That's going to be our reward. And again, I think Jesus is saying that we've underestimated the reward of the Father. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they can't even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says we're far too easily pleased. Now there's some bad news. The bad news is that our passions are too weak. We're far too easily pleased. We settle all the time. The truth is that in and of ourselves, we're, we're, we're even incapable of, of right motives. Again, we're much more like the hypocrites than we would ever care to admit. But there's good news. The good news, this is what you want to listen to. The good news is that there is one who is not too easily pleased. One whose passions are not compromised. They're not weak. There is one who on our behalf lived, died, was buried, was resurrected, and ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father, who earned the reward that we couldn't earn and invites us to identify with him in all of those things. As we believe in him and his work, He then will increasingly restore our passions. He will right our motives and then empower us to live the lives of fullness that God intended for us. Lives that are satisfied, lives that are obedient, lives that bring glory to the king, lives that go beyond the walls of the church and take this good news of true life into the places where there is lifelessness. Who is he? His name is Jesus. In closing, I want to extend an invitation to you. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this. Jesus offers an invitation to come and experience the glory that we hear about in this verse, the reward promised to those who are obedient. And this reward comes through the person of Jesus. I invite you 
to taste of Jesus, to experience Jesus. He is good. He will change you. I'm going to close with Isaiah 55. This is God's invitation, by the way. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor, why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live.